Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are so glad you are here for the Friday edition, the Good Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is off today, but Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online, co-founder of Ricochet, co-host of the Glop podcast, and so many other accolades under his belt, is here <laughs> in Jim's place. Rob, how are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, happy Happy Easter to you a few days early, but um, it's a strange kind of Easter weekend, but uh, you know, there have been stranger, I guess. Hopefully a, a good time for everyone to, uh, yeah. to focus on, on the hope that comes with Easter. And uh, we do have good and bad and crazy martinis for conservatives today to end out the week. And Rob, we start with the good. And sometimes the, some of the best martinis are the ones where you just absolutely don't see them coming. And that's <laughs> where we are today on our good martini. This all starts with a tweet a couple days ago, maybe, maybe just yesterday, from Morgan Ortegas. Uh, she's the spokesperson for the State Department, and she says, the U.S. welcomes China's call to combat the COVID-19 pandemic together. We urge Beijing to share all virus data, let intel teams investigate how the outbreak began in China, and allow citizens free speech. True cooperation requires transparency and real actions, not just rhetoric. So then this uh, figure from the Chinese Department of Information and a foreign ministry spokesperson says, welcome to China anytime and talk to anyone in the streets to enjoy the freedom. You can tell this is not their native tongue or this is just Twitter's translation. <laughs> right, but right. Uh, by the way, where is freedom and transparency when Captain Crozier was dismissed for a letter to save thousands of lives and medical workers fired for talking about working conditions? So those are shots fired. But who comes flying into the ring? It's not Morgan Ortegas. It's an FCC commissioner named Brendan yeah. Carr. And he comes in and says, and this is a pretty long thread. Great. First, I would like to speak with Dr. Ai Fen. She worked at Wuhan Central Hospital and tried to sound the alarm on the virus. Could you undisappear her so we could speak? Then he goes on to say, next, I'd like to speak with Chen Kuishi and Fang Bin, two video bloggers that tried to bring the world a glimpse of Wuhan unfiltered by your communist regime. Could you undisappear them so we could speak? I'd like to speak with Li Zehua next. He worked as a journalist in Wuhan and refused to stay silent on COVID. In his last report, he live streamed his own arrest. Could you undisappear him so we could speak? Then I'd like to speak with Xu Jiang. He was arrested after he criticized your party leader for his botched handling of the coronavirus outbreak. And on and on and on. There's eight or nine different things here. And so at the very end, he says, does your offer still stand or has it suddenly disappeared as things tend to do over there? So, uh, Rob, Twitter burns are, are pretty yeah. uh, ubiquitous. We see them a lot, but this one's pretty epic. Yeah, it was pretty great. I was also weird that it's an FCC commissioner, <laughs> right. uh, which is a, th a thing that a most normal, decent, you know, hardworking Americans think about about every, you know, twice a year, maybe when they mean FDA, mostly they say FCC. So it was kind of a strange thing for this guy. But I think, you know, what it shows also is that the Chinese are actually paying attention to this stuff, that that was a pretty good um, classic uh, Soviet era, Cold War era response, you know, well, what about the American Indians? Like they used to say, what about uh, Wounded Knee? What about um, uh, Attica prison? They used to like throw that all whenever we complained about the old Soviet Union. So the, the Chinese are sort of getting good at that. Um, you know, she got a point about Crozier. I mean, <laughs> that is kind of what happened there. But on the other hand, it is sort of worrying that a spokesperson is spending so much time on a Twitter fight. Because the one thing we know about Twitter fights is they have zero impact. 
in national <laughs> discourse or the course of events, right? They're, they are utterly futile. And all they do is impress, I guess, the people who are already on your side. So you know, maybe she's done a good thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe in, instead of like, you know, um, condemning her, we should praise her for her uh, incredibly Western style brown nosing to her bosses. She'll be able to present her Twitter uh, clap back and say, look, I'm engaging in social media. And they'll say, this is good. This is social media engagement. We like it. I mean, even though it really makes no difference at all. Two thoughts here, uh, Rob. First of all, I know there's a big fight right now over uh, different countries allowing Huawei to uh, get involved right. with 5G and, and other uh, security protocols. The, the UK uh, is heading in that direction. and We don't like it very much because we don't trust the Chinese or Huawei because they are uh, connected to the Chinese government. Uh, so is this kind of a, a shot across the bow from an FCC perspective on, on that sort of thing? It probably reflects his own concern and disdain for the, you know, the dictators who run China and his own, I mean, I think legitimate fears about, um, you know, digital security. It, the, the problem with it is that it's a little bit, um, I mean, we are a little bit, the, not all of the horses have left the barn, but a lot of them have left the barn. So you know, trying to like refit the locks is maybe a little, it's a, not late, but it's going to be, it's a rear guard action. It's not we've been asleep at the switch for a long time. Every American businessman who's done, done business in China, and that's uh, starting from 1978 to last week, says that they, they, know, they are told and they know instantly that their computers have been sniffed, that their phones have been tapped, that everything, every piece of intellectual property or proprietary information or personal correspondence has been lifted. Um, and you kind of always knew, everybody kind of knew that was happening. But we kind of were sleepwalking through it for 30 years, thinking, well, you know, eventually it won't matter because the Chinese will discover how great it is to be, you know, essentially a first world country. Um, that, that doesn't seem to be happening. So um, now we kind of have to sort of uh, figure out how to retroactively, you know, lock down all of our uh, communications. Unless it's the entire world against the Chinese, which seems unlikely. And I'm not sure it's really going to work. Uh, the most we can hope for is, um, you know, kind of backdoor technology, which, which frankly, the government, the U.S. government's trying to put into digital communications here anyway. So, um, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, to, to me, the FCC commissioner sort of uh, it was sort of predisposed to believe the Chinese are, you know, uh, meretricious at the least, and uh, and that's what's been evidenced here. The larger 5G issue and digital security issue and communications security issue, I think is, um, I think we're all going to be disappointed if what we're hoping for is a lockdown. Well, I, I should point sorry out, to bring it down. Yeah, Rob, this is the good martini. Yeah, sorry. On, <laughs> yeah, keep it on the up and up. Now, Brendan Carr is also, uh, from a conservative perspective, on the good side on the FCC. He voted to reverse net neutrality. And I don't know if you've seen different data, Rob, but I'm pretty sure the death toll that we were promised from reversing net neutrality has not materialized, uh, certainly in the same numbers as the Chinese coronavirus. <laughs> no, no, it's been, it's, it's not even as bad as the flu, as I guess, which is now the metric we use for all deaths. Uh, you know, the net neutrality de <laughs> deaths related to, to your poor connectivity or low bandwidth um, now are somewhere uh, a little bit lower than the flu. Along with Paris Accord, the Paris Accords, too. <laughs> right. Don't forget tax cuts. Tax no, cuts. Tax, that's killed some people, too. Quick uh, aside here, because we were debating which good martini to go with, because uh, apparently Bill Barr told Laura Ingram in an interview this week that uh, John Durham is not really focusing on a report on the origins of the uh, federal investigation into the Trump campaign. Uh, instead, he's focusing on who he can indict. And uh, <laughs> you and I were just chatting beforehand that uh, in a normal news cycle, 
that would be pretty big stuff. Uh, you'd yeah. have Rachel Maddow pulling her hair out and Sean Hannity just kind of giving you that uh, I told you so look pretty much all night. Yeah, it, did, it felt like like Russia what again? What, what's that all about? <laughs> like I just, I couldn't really remember. Like, wait, there's a Russia thing? That was like ancient history. It was like reading, it's like, you know, when you, uh, in, in those um, plague movies or like contagion movies where someone walks across an empty uh, boulevard that used to be filled with traffic and people and then a, an old newspaper rolls by and it has the news from before the contagion and, you know, the ideas like you hosted, like, that's so weird that we cared about all that stuff. I completely forgot that this was going on. I mean, I completely forgot that there were the, the a president of the United States was impeached and had a Senate trial and was acquitted by the Senate. All that stuff that was so momentous doesn't seem so momentous. So I think he's smart to skip the report and go right to indictments. Also, if he has indictments ready, that should be the finish to the story, right? Another report, another 50-page report that some people read and some people cherry-pick from is not going to help us. What we need is to see, as they all say, you know, um, you know, as the turnaround artists do when they come into a failing company, heads on sticks. I want to see some heads. I want to see them on sticks, or I don't want to hear about this ever again. Well, we'll see. It's obviously an election year, and so even if there are indictments, uh, does the outcome of the election determine whether or not there's ever actually a trial <laughs> for these people, uh, if there are charges? So. I think you're going to have a hard time getting anybody in America to remember that. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, uh, Rob. And let's go on to another aspect of uh, coronavirus because obviously, as Jim and I just talked about yesterday, we've lost over 16 million jobs in just the last three weeks. Uh, you're starting to get to a point very, very quickly, if we're not there already, where the, the damage from lost jobs and uh, economic uh, desperation uh, is going to be a, a major health concern as well. And so you've got the president and many other people saying, look, we get to May or somewhere around there, we've really got to start ramping the economy back up. It's just not sustainable at this level. Well, other people have very different views on this. Uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, you might remember him. He's the brother of Aram Emanuel. He's a doctor and he was one of the chief architects of Obamacare. He was the one that told us a while back that once you hit 75 and if you come into a major health problem, you know what? You've had a good life. Let's not burden the system with extra costs. Uh, just tap out and everybody will save some cash. Now he's saying uh, something very, very different. Here's what he said to Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC a couple nights ago. Realistically, COVID-19 will be here for the next 18 months or more. We will not be able to return to normalcy until we find a vaccine or effective medications. I know that's dreadful news to hear. How are people supposed to find work if this goes on in some form for a year and a half? Is all that economic pain worth trying to stop COVID-19? The truth is, we have no choice. If we prematurely end that physical distancing and the other measures, keeping it at bay, deaths could skyrocket into the hundreds of thousands, if not a million. We cannot return to normal until there's a vaccine. Conferences, concerts, sporting events, religious services, dinner in a restaurant, none of that will resume until we find a vaccine, a treatment, or a cure. So there you go, uh, Rob. Uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is essentially saying <laughs> not necessarily that we have to uh, stay exactly as we are right now, but he says in order to get a vaccine or a treatment that works for absolutely everyone, it's going to take clinical trials and that takes 12 to 18 months. So in that time, no gatherings, uh, churches, restaurants, concerts, whatever, uh, it's pretty much going to be like this in some form or fashion for a very long time. <laughs> well, on the, on the one hand, you, 
you get the impression from Ezekiel Emmanuel that, that, that he actually likes this. It's like all the things that he says that we have to stop doing are things that he wasn't doing anyway. You know, like, <laughs> so for some people, this is actually fine. You're going to get to stay home all the time and I can't participate in any kind of group activities. Terrific. Right. But on the other hand, I'm thinking like, man, doctor, make up your mind because it wasn't that long ago that as you pointed out, he was saying things like, Hey, listen, at a certain point you've had a good run. Uh, you know, we're not going to give you a new hip if you're 72. We're not going to give it. And, it. and the idea was that sort of cold hearted, but re the reality of it, the economic reality was like, let's, let's understand how we're deploying our healthcare resources. And should we be deploying healthcare resources for people who don't have much time, time left to live on an actuarial table, or maybe they are uh, terminally ill or all sorts of things, right? And that's a horrible. And we all complained about that because we don't like rationing. And now he's saying that <laughs> in order to get a vaccine or a treatment that is good for, you know, that works for you know, close to 100% of the people, we have to stay home for 18 months. It seems, I mean, there aren't going to be any people left. I mean, what on earth, no, certainly nobody's going to be left to be able to afford this vaccine in 18 months. Everyone's going to be completely broke. But also that's a standard that he would not accept and did not accept not that many years ago when he was suggesting that we should nationalize the, the entire healthcare system of America, when we had to get, we had to be willing to accept a lot of loss. I had to be willing to accept uh, a, the primacy of the economic argument for your treatment. And I think you know, now, now that he's home, we're all home. Suddenly that those, uh, the, 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 this, those standards have changed. That goalpost, I mean, there's, there's moving the goalpost and there's actually picking up the goalpost and taking it to an entire stadium across town, which is kind of what he's done here. Um, and I think America, you know, the weird thing about it is that everybody predicts that Americans are going to freak out, that Americans can't handle this, they can't handle that. Americans won't accept this or that. Americans seem to be shrugging and saying, okay, I'll stay home. Okay, I'll wear a mask. Okay, I'll wash my hands. Okay, I'll do all that up to a point. And then, you know, then we're all going to go back to work. And the, the answer is that it, it is true that the coronavirus is going to become endemic in the population. We're going to have it and it is going to come back and it is probably going to send some people to hospital and some of those people will never come home from the hospital. Um, and I think most of Americans are like, okay, that's kind of the risk we take when we, you know, cross the street. That's certainly the risk we take when we go to certain fast food restaurants. I mean, the American appetite for risk is pretty good. It's not crazy. It's not reckless. It's also not insanely cautious. So once again, you know, uh, Dr. Emanuel has found himself on the extreme, on the, on the weird extremes. And most Americans are somewhere in that kind of shrugging, it's okay, middle. And, uh, you know, if I had to throw my, throw my hat in one ring, it'd be with the, most of Americans and not with Mr. You know, Dr. Extreme. Being on the opposite side of Ezekiel Emanuel is uh, probably a pretty good litmus test that uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, your, right. your, your moral grounding is in a good spot. Uh, so what is the American people's limit on, on doing this while we see these kind of economic numbers, but at the same time, they want to make sure that uh, they're not reckless in terms of endangering people's health? Is it the end of this month? Is it the end of May? I mean, at, at what point do people just say, I can't do this anymore. I got to go make some money. Well, I think most, I think that's what's going to happen, that, the, that, that we are going to all go back to work and probably all the stores will open sooner than the, you know, the, the most cautious medical experts say we should, but um, a little bit after economic experts are freaking about, out about the economy. So I think the American people will figure out a little middle path and they'll all go back and it'll be fine. It'll be actually fine. And, and the, you know, it is true that unemployment numbers are high, but that is because those people are enjoined legally from going to work. 
um, and that those businesses that are we're employing them are no, have no more customers because they are, they are closed. But that's not the same thing as an economy falling apart or a giant uh, money center banks being over leveraged or uh, a, you know, a huge swath of collateralized debt obligations uh, going south as they did in 2008. This is just, you can't open for business, so there is no business, so there is no payroll. And, and I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the Congress unanimously voted some $2 trillion or whatever was some insane number, a number larger than your brain can comprehend of money printing, which is going to be distributed all across America uh, in the next you know, six months. Six months from now, let's do one of these and we'll be talking about inflation numbers. That's the thing we should be worried about, not, not unemployment. Unemployment will probably be back to 3%. I mean, I'm, I'm a Pollyanna on this, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about that stuff. Um, you know, there was no underlying problem with the economy. It was growing and the unemployment was low. Nobody was discovered to be cheating. Nobody was just, no, no businesses failed. They simply closed their doors. And so the sooner they open, the better. We don't want to get sick. But, you know, the American people, again, I, th I feel like the American people have an intuitive sense of what's right and what's wrong and when's right and when's, when's wrong. And I, I think after this, the, when they're really ready to go back to work, it'll be kind of the right time to go back to work anyway. Um, but again, I'm, uh, I'm an optimist on this stuff. But uh, you mentioned treatment, Rob. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, because this has been a crazy issue brewing for weeks and weeks now. I can distinctly remember reading very non-emotional, uh, non-partisan, I mean, why would there be a partisan analysis of what medications might help people with the symptoms and the effects of <laughs> right. COVID-19. And one of them was, hey, there's this anti-malaria drug that's been around since the 30s, certainly the 40s, uh, called hydroxychloroquine. And uh, it seems to, based on anecdotal evidence, be having a pretty good effect on folks. And so they start these clinical trials and that takes time as well as, you know, just like the vaccine trials do before you can come to any definitive conclusions. But uh, different doctors are, are deciding to give this a try, especially if their patients are not improving. And so word of this gets back to President Trump and in the way he does, uh, maybe didn't couch it exactly how he should have, but basically said this seems to be having a good effect right. in a lot of cases. So I would encourage uh, folks, if you want to, uh, talk with your doctor and, and see if that's going to be right for you. It's almost like the tagline on these prescription drug commercials, you know, <laughs> yeah. ask your doctor if this is right for you. And here's <laughs> 73 side effects that come with it. As soon as he did that, yeah. Rob, you've got the uh, folks on the left. You got Kamala Harris saying he's a drug pusher. You've got the media uh, just absolutely apoplectic. Anytime anybody suggests that this might be at least a partial answer to the problem. And anytime there's analysis suggesting it's not the cure-all. There's almost a celebratory quality on the left. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the right, everybody's just saying, Clark went for everybody, at least in some circles. And so, you know, whatever happened to the patient <laughs> and their doctor just consulting and, hey, maybe we should try this and let it happen on an individual basis. What do you make of the, the politicizing of a, of a drug here? Why not? Everything else is. I mean, they, it may as well do the, the actual treatment for the disease because the disease has been politicized. Your, your bathroom is politicized. So there's, there's no reason why this shouldn't be politicized, too. Uh, it would have been funny, though, had, had when Trump was pitching it, uh, he, he actually did that, you know, that fast talking. Some side effects include, you know, inability to all that fast stuff they do, uh, fear of the tomatoes, all that stuff they do on the TV. You know, that's your doctor. Um, I, you, the, the thing about this, the, what makes it weird is that the, everyone, you're right, you could tell the glee and, the, and the, the glee when it doesn't work 
or the glee when there are um, what, what are actually the most normal anodyne boilerplate um, uh, responses to it. Like, well, the New York Times said, well, it, it, you know, it, it works better when they get it. You know, it's not a cure-all. It works better when they, get, when they give it to you early. Well, okay, that's true for aspirin too. I'd rather take the aspirin when I'm about to get the headache than when I have that. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't seem all of those little cavils and nitpicks that they do just seem to reinforce the idea that they're kind of they are kind of on the virus's side here. But it, but it, it is the same as you know when unemployment numbers come out. No matter, you know, if the guy, if your guy is in the White House, you cheer. And if they're low, right? And if unemployment numbers go down and your guy is not in the White House, you complain about statistical methodology. And when unemployment numbers go up and your guy is in the White House, you complain about statistical methodology. And when they go up and your guy is not in the White House, you cheer. But you have to, you can't cheer. You have to, you have to cheer in some weird kind of subliminal code word, barely concealed way that everyone kind of sees through, but we cut it, we sort of get it. Um, and that's what's happening here. And it's so bizarre because if hydroxychloroquine works, I'm not sure that that means that anybody is going to benefit politically. How would you bet? You would only benefit politically if you were saying, hey, we should try this. And the other side was saying, absolutely not. Don't try it, which is kind of the weird uh, jujitsu that Trump manages to play on his opponents, right? He, he says something and they jump on it so hard that it turns out they look weird. Uh, and he has sort of expended very little effort. And that is just the, the, the Lucy and the football relationship that the <laughs> press seems to have with him that they continually can continually get into, which is really, I mean, get therapy is what I would say. I think it could end up uh, hurting Democrats and, and, and certainly the credibility of the media if there's any more damage left to be done there. If it works, great. If not, well, uh, in certain cases, it might not be as effective. Apparently, if there's, you have certain conditions, it's probably not a good idea. But uh, the idea that you're more interested in Trump being wrong than saving lives, or at least that's right. the perception that people get, that's twisted. It is twisted. And I think it's also, I think people are discovering this kind of information drought they have that they that in a, in a in a in an era where we actually want information where people do actually want information mostly they don't right but now they kind of do right i want to know information about this and they turn on tv to watch it and all they get is politics all they really get are like well you know what is the what's the what are the poll numbers and what did trump how what did he how did he yell at a reporter today and it's all they're getting and then then it's only natural that they would start to wonder well why am i paying attention to any of this at all the actual damage the media is doing to itself here, I think, is really incalculable. That is going to be the biggest casualty, I think, not the number of people who are sick. I think it's going to be the reputation for fact-finding uh, and truth that the media has, which is incredibly, incredibly low right now and getting lower. And it's not because uh, Trump is screaming fake news, fake news, fake news. It's because they are doing it to themselves. The way all, you know, all the worst wounds are always self-inflicted, and this one seems to be, I mean, terminal. The left uh, constantly wants 10 rounds or less in a magazine, but somehow there's always one bullet left to keep shooting themselves in the foot here. I don't <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Like, what's the, like you guys kind of feel sorry. Like, come on, guys, get it together. This is not good. You, you, you should be better than this. Yes. This, this, guy, this guy is beating you? Like you want to say, <laughs> really?
He is uh, tying them in knots on a lot of different occasions. Yeah. So Rob, great to have you with us uh, in Jim's stead today. Have a wonderful Easter, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you, and happy, happy Good Friday and happy Easter. Thank you, sir, very much. And we wish all of you a very happy Easter. May the truths of Good Friday and Easter Sunday resonate even deeper this year in these unique circumstances that we face and provide us all with a sustained hope and comfort. Uh, He's Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online. He's also a co-founder of Ricochet and a co-host of the Glop podcast. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch and leave us a kind review. And also remember that you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a wonderful Easter weekend. Jim will be back on Monday. Please join us then for the next Three Martini Lunch.